You're listening to our podcast series, Dirty Words. This podcast is brought to you by QAD. In a world of increasing change and disruption, it's important to have solutions that can help you not just survive, but thrive. Learn more about QAD's adaptive applications on QAD.com. Well, folks, we've all heard some dirty words in our time. They can be unpleasant. They can be controversial. Uh, but in Dirty Words, our podcast, our effort is not really placed in expanding your vocabulary of profanity, of course. It is tackling words that are often representative of controversy or concern in the business world with relation to information technology. Today's dirty word, disruption. My name is Tom Roberts. I'm the Vice President of Automotive and Mobility Sector at QAD. And I'd like to introduce my distinguished guest, Carter Lloyds, who is QAD's Chief Marketing Officer. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me here today. And I think I'm really here as somebody who's passionate about automotive, passionate about technology and disruption, and those two things sort of merging right now, more so that than uh, my role at QAD. Absolutely. You know, and Carter, Carter and I have had a lot of discussions about EVs, about market placement, about, you know, the, the rise of Tesla and Rivian. We've had some really good discussions on that. So looking forward to today's discussion. Well, folks, remember back to the good old days before 2020. I don't know if you can remember that, but, you know, the days when we actually set foot inside of a grocery store, when we planned family vacations to crowded places, and maybe even to foreign lands. You know, those heady days when the only people wearing masks were operating room doctors and nurses or firefighting professionals or children of Halloween. <laughs> you know, maybe three years from now, you know, children are going to dress up a Halloween with an N95 mask and a T-shirt with a picture of a dumpster fire on it. And people will know they are, quote, dressing up like 2020. <laughs> 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 you know, again, the time marches on it. And, and what we're seeing is clear with the onslaught of COVID-19. There has been a sea change in the automotive world. You know, companies are not only allowing, but requiring many of their employees to work remotely. For example, GM and Ford both have said for their white car employees to work from home in the United States well into 2021. And you know, a lot of these automotive companies are rethinking their commercial footprints. You know, as people can see that the workplace of the future might not be a workplace, quote unquote, at all, but simply where everyone has a laptop and broadband access. Disruption. We're going to focus today on two areas of disruption. One is the movement from internal combustion engines to ACEs, which is autonomous, connected, electrified, and shared vehicles. And the second will be this post-COVID world that we're talking about. You know, when the kids three years from now wear those wear those costumes. But again, you know, disruption, Carter, was really already happening in automotive. You know, the rise of new technologies, this move from ICE to ACEs, you know, you have a hundred and some parts in an internal combustion engine moving down to somewhere between nine and 25 in the EV, depending on who you talk to. It's really changed the industry completely. You know, what are you seeing with the rise of, of EVs and ACEs in the automotive world? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I think it's a tale of maybe two different countries. You know, there are people on the West Coast that are sort of plugged in no pun intended, to the EV market. And then there are people who are in other places. And, you know, the question is, who's right, who's ahead, and where's it going? I think to really break it down, though, we need to think about this according to first principles, which is kind of 
a jobs to be done approach, right? So why do people have cars? What's the purpose of it? And again, I think there's probably, you know, at least two or three different reasons. You know, I mean, I remember being 16 and getting a car and it was the only thing that mattered was freedom. Just that concept that I could get out there and, and do whatever I wanted. And that's the viewpoint of a 16-year-old. Then there's the viewpoint of somebody who just appreciates the performance and the thrill and the power and, and what, what a technical marvel it is. But then there's the really pragmatic approach, which is why I'd say 99% of the people buy cars. You know, it's, it's probably the second largest investment anybody's ever going to make. And it's really about the ability to go from point A to point B to, um, you know, get to their job, get their kids to school, get to the groceries. And that's, that's what it's all about. And so when we think about that transition from ICE to ACES, you know, for that third group, who cares about the technology, right? It's really just about how can they do that in the way that is, you know, safest for their family and most cost effective. And I think when we look at that area of, of most cost effective, that's where we're really going to see things flipping very, very, very quickly. I think faster than people thought. Because as of a couple of years ago, deciding that you wanted to go toward ACEs, which, you know, when you added all those pieces of the ACEs, the only thing that really was, was electrification. And that was also kind of weak. It, it meant a lot of trade-offs, right? It meant that you were going to go to a vehicle that had less range, less performance, and was a lot more expensive, both in its initial cost and even potentially in its ongoing cost. But what we've seen happen, and you know, I, I have to give Tesla a lot of credit for this, is they have driven down these learning curves. And there's this concept of Wright's Law, which is kind of like Moore's Law you know, for semiconductors. But Wright's Law is really about the cumulative production, the idea that whenever you double cumulative production, you get a very predictable decrease in cost. That applies to you know, the overall vehicle, but also batteries. And we've seen massive expansion in the use of batteries and those learning curve cost reductions are going quickly. So what we're now seeing with Teslas are cars that are, yes, maybe still a little bit more expensive for their initial purchase, but total cost of ownership now is very, very low, you know, lower than even Toyotas and, and approaching Hondas that are out there on the market. So it's becoming a very compelling thing. When we think about performance, which maybe goes to, you know, that idea of buying a car for the power and, and the marvel of it, We've seen incredible statistics that are coming out of that. During battery day, you know, I think a lot of people were dep uh, depressed at what they heard out of Tesla. I was amazed at just what that pretends for the future because the battery is the most expensive part of an EV. So to be able to see them lower that, to be able to see them talk about delivering a $25,000 car in three years, you know, I, I honestly believe that the battle's already over and it's been won. Most people just haven't seen it yet. Absolutely true. And again, it's funny because you talk about two different groups of people, you know, the people that buy cars as a passion, more of a, you know, it's more of a visceral sort of thing. And then there's actually just the point A to point B. I, I can remember back when one of the airlines, and I won't pick on anybody, was having some computer issues. I think it was a couple of years ago. And I could not get a flight out of Detroit. Couldn't get a flight. I had to be at a plant down in South Carolina. And I remember walking out to my car and sitting in my car for a second in the, in, in the parking lot and just wanting to hit the go to the plant button. <laughs> I just, I, I wanted to just hit the button and I wanted the car to just drive there. I wanted to sleep or whatever, you know, I just didn't have the energy, uh, but I had to go and I had to do it. I just, I wanted to hit that button. And, and again, you know, we talk about point A to point B for that. I just wanted to get there. 
So it's funny that you bring that up. And, you know, we talk about, you know, we're going to talk about the visceral side. You know, GM announced the Hummer, the Hummer EV, a thousand horsepower. And it has this crab walk capability where it can actually move laterally side to side. And, you know, you talk about the original Hummer, it had a couple hundred horsepower. I think it had a 6.2 liter diesel. It was very high in torque, of course, but this, <laughs> this vehicle is a thousand horsepower and has 1100 or 11,000 foot pound of torque. So it's just an amazing, you know, we talk about the difference between point A and point B and visceral. It's, it's just amazing what we've seen out there. And just, just to that point, you know, uh, you know, let's focus on the visceral because that is, you know, kind of where the passion drives from. I mean, I remember as a kid seeing cars that could go, you know, zero to 60 in six seconds and thinking, wow, that, that's amazing. I want to one day own a car like that. That's just incredible. And with electrification, just this instant torque, this concept that, you know, there's no such thing as trying to get your RPMs to a certain point where it kicks in or, oh, let's throw a turbo on it. But what about turbo lag? I mean, it's just there. And you see these numbers coming down to sub two seconds, zero to 60 times, which are just crazy. Um, I remember, you know, what a sports car means. It's just, it's, it's just insane. And, you know, cars, I remember the first cars coming out that could hit, you know, 200 miles an hour. And I don't know if it was maybe the Ferrari F40 or uh, maybe the Porsche 959 was almost there and thinking these things are just unbelievable. I can't believe this. And now, you know, multiple cars over 200 now approaching, you know, 260. Some car that's going into production, I, I heard, you know, just hit over 300. It's just insane. And, you know, those are numbers, of course, that you're never going to touch. But the zero to 60 is something you're going to feel. It's something that when you're, you know, getting on that highway, that 16-year-old, and you can start to smile again as you have that acceleration or you need to pass that car on the highway. It's, it's, it's incredible. You know, just to tie out on the visceral side and, and maybe bring it back to the more practical side, the thing that really kills me and, and maybe makes this transition from EV ICE to EV maybe is less interesting than even ICE to autonomous. And, and for me, it, it comes down to the fact that I'm a fairly conservative guy. And the most dangerous thing I do in my life is actually drive a car. It's <laughs> unbelievable when you think um, how dangerous it is. I mean, I think if the technology just came out, it would never get approved in this world where, you know, you've got to basically have rails when you have more than one or two steps. <laughs> it's just incredible. We, in this country, unfortunately, lose around 35,000 people a year in automotive crashes. And globally, it's 350,000 people die. And about 90% of those deaths are due to basically human error. You know, we, we get distracted. We're not able to pay attention all the time. We make bad decisions. And the potential for an autonomous vehicle to save that many lives is just mind-boggling. It's, it's absolutely incredible. When I think about my kids who one is actually going in for uh, driver training this week, getting his permit in a few weeks. You know, I'm deathly afraid of what this means and how it goes, mostly because I remember myself at that age and how I wasn't necessarily uh, the smartest kid on the block when it came to thinking about this. But just to put those numbers in, in comparison, so 350,000 deaths a year. And I believe this was the president of Waymo that made this analogy, which I think is pretty powerful. That would be like a 747 packed with people falling out of the sky and exploding with everybody killed every, let's say, six hours of every day, every day of the year. It is just a mind-boggling number, and somehow we've become immune to it. Somehow we think it's the cost of doing business. It's to be accepted, and I, I think it absolutely needs to be rejected. Absolutely. So, again, we talk about the visceral reaction versus point A to point B. We talk about safety. 
you know, there's also the manufacturing element of the move from ICE to ACES. And again, you know, you talk about the change where you have an internal combustion engine that may have over 100 parts in it to a EV powertrain <clears throat> where it just has, you know, maybe maybe between nine and 20 parts. You know, you've got fewer parts, you've got fewer suppliers making those parts. And what I've seen, Carter, is that it actually changes the entire supply base for a company that's putting together an EV. For example, General Motors in the bolt, uh, LG Chem, provided 60% of the supplied content for the Chevy Bolt. And GM, to my understanding, has never had a vehicle where one supplier provided 60% of the content for that vehicle. And that's what we're seeing today. And, you know, 20 years ago, LG Chem or, or a company like LG Chem in supplying electronics would have only supplied maybe just a handful of things for a car. Well, now you've taken the traditional supply base and said, okay, well, we might not need a flexible fuel line anymore, and we might not need a fuel injection system anymore, but we're going to have to go get these other things. So again, completely changing and turning on its head the traditional manufacturing environment. Is that what you've seen out there as well? It, it absolutely is. You know, in thinking about the complexity of the ICE engine and even the ICE supply chain, it kind of reminds me of those cartoons that you would see. I think they were called uh, Rube Goldberg machines, but where they would try and solve a simple problem with the most complex machine possible, where, you know, an egg is thrown over, there's a fan, there's, you know, mice that move through something, and then finally it unlocks the door rather than just unlocking the door. It, that, that's what ICE feels like to me. It's overly complex, so many moving parts, so many different things going on. And, and same for the supply chain and manufacturing, you know, we've long recognized that the automotive supply chain is a marvel of complexity, and that's not necessarily a compliment. And so when we move to electrification, as you pointed out, we're going to see this massive reshuffling of who's in the supply chain, this shrinking of the supply chain, and uh, a real new age in terms of who has power in the supply chain. Is it the OEM? Mm -hmm. Is it the battery manufacturer, particularly when there are going to be constraints, decisions around, do we vertically integrate? How far do we vertically integrate? Do we want to go all the way back into mining the materials to the creation of the cell or the pack? And to what extent are there going to be common platforms that are going to be sold you know, across multiple different OEMs? It is, you know, it's as if they completely reshuffled the deck and it's going to be fascinating to see how this thing plays out. Tying back to what I said earlier too around you know, rights law and these learning curve effects and how fast we can get down the cost curves. When you think about the ICE engine, it was very, very mature. So there were not that many more cost savings to be had. When we think about ICE, it's still very immature. I mean, I'm sorry, ACEs and particularly electrification, still very immature. And so there are enormous cost savings to be had. So it's almost a question of, is there a whole new game to be played, which is how can I get market share as fast as possible? Who cares about profitability? Simply that I can get the volumes and get down those cost curves and basically create a moat and prevent any competitors from catching up to me. I mean, I think it is, it's, it's fascinating. I like to say it's a little bit like a perfect storm when you see all of these disruptions layering upon disruptions and then throw an earthquake in there too, because it's just absolutely unprecedented. Absolutely. And, and you know, you look at the numbers, you know, prediction from Morgan Stanley, you know, as the, as the automotive industry is making this transition from ICE to electronic vehicle or electrified vehicles, 
they have predicted that there will be about a seven-year cycle where there is no net EBIT, no net profitability in the overall OEM world simply because of that transition, because you're investing so much money in R&D to move to a completely different vehicle that you're actually having to have that transition in, in literally about seven years where there's no net EBIT. So very interesting statistics coming from there. And again, it, the interesting thing about the industry is that even if you have, you know, say that you have a company that makes seats or you have a company that makes interiors, you're still going to need an interior. You know, you're still going to need door panels and instrument panels and an overhead console and headliners and, and those types of things in an in a EV. You're going to need seats in an EV. You're going to need all those things. The, the thing that is very difficult for those traditional suppliers today is you have to pick the winners, right? So today, you know, the general volume for a Ford F-150 and for a Cadillac or for a Ford vehicle or for a Mercedes or something, you know, the general volume that those vehicles are going to be produced at. There is no way to predict who's going to be the winner five years from now. So you might be completely successful in making interiors for a vehicle today, for example. And if you don't pick the right rising winners in the EV space, your completely successful business could, again, be turned on its head because you didn't pick the right EV winners. And it's just there's so much transition going on. And that's why I think companies, Carter, I, I really think companies have to be ready for M&A. They have to be ready to buy and sell very quickly integrate very quickly. They have to make the right choices and get their companies ready for how to deal with the disruption by getting their systems and processes ready. I, I believe it's a must. Fascinating point. So many packed into what you just said there. I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, there are ones that are fairly clear things like, okay, if you're in the steering wheel, if you make steering wheels, you could see that going away if we truly went to autonomous versus interiors, you would see, imagine you always need then there are gray areas. There are things that, well, you think it goes one way, but actually it might not. Things like brakes. Well, every car is going to need brakes, right? Uh, yes and no. Yes, every car will need brakes. But when you think about an EV and regenerative braking, the amount of wear and tear you're putting on those brake pads, for example, is so low, you may never need to replace your brake pads, or you might need to do it on a pace that is far below what you would need to do. So all of a sudden, if you're in the brake pad industry, your, your sales, particularly your, your replacement sales could just plummet and go out. You might think about mirrors, rear view mirrors and side view mirrors. Again, yes, of course, car needs them. But when you think about autonomous again, do they need them? And even as we start to transition, if you've got these technologies that are, you know, let's say level two, level three, the number of cameras you have on a car could allow even a human driver to replace those mirrors with, uh, you know, internal little screens that show what's going on. That's not legal yet, at least not in the US, but, you know, certainly there's pending legislation. But when you think about the drag, that particularly side view mirrors put on a car, you know, nobody's winning there. It's costing you more money in terms of electricity, in terms of gas to power that car. You know, that just seems like something that um, it needs to go away. To your, to your point on interiors too, that's a fascinating one. So, you know, what are the requirements for interiors in an EV versus in ICE? You might think no different, but certainly at least in this point, there's more range anxiety with EVs. So lighter weight materials might be favored. Now, if we think about the advent of the autonomous vehicle, and again, we go back to a jobs to be done approach. So why do people have cars? If it's simply mobility, 
then do people really want to own a car? I would argue no. You know, the average car in the U.S. is used maybe five to ten percent of the time. That's terrible utilization. If you were in manufacturing and that was your, you know, your factory yeah, utilization, you kill yourself. So, you know, there's a much better model out there, which is you combine autonomous with EVs, and you basically have autonomous EV subscription ride-sharing services where you sign up and you decide how nice the vehicle you want is. There's a service level agreement where, you know, one is to wherever you want to be within, let's say five or 10 minutes, and then you're good to go. And in that case, and you combine that with million mile batteries and million mile motors, and now you're probably talking about interiors that instead of being used five to 10% of the time for anywhere from 250,000 miles to 300,000 miles, you're talking about interiors that are going to be used 100% of the time very quickly for up to a million miles. And maybe what you're talking about is very durable materials, which of course have a, a trade-off with lightweight materials. But also maybe what you find is rather than you're replacing cars because your, your engine has died, you're mm-hmm. keeping cars for a very long time and you're actually replacing interiors. So you're refurbishing yeah. the inside of cars. Like the area, like the area. Fascinating yeah. new, new area. Yeah, just like the airline industry, for example, you know, you're exactly the interior because the asset still as a whole, you know, it can go on for many years. Interesting. So, again, you know, when we talk about disruption, clearly there's a lot of things going out of the move from ice to aces. We talked about that. Now we've got to talk about COVID, Carter. I mean, it's just, (laughs) you know, here I am sitting in my home. I have my 11 year old about 10 feet behind me taking (laughs) taking class. I've got a college student in the home, I've got high school, you know, it's, it's just interesting how the world it has changed. You know, and it, as you look at statistics out there, it's, it's a brutal scene in the difference between companies and actually countries. I was looking at a stat the other day from the United Nations. They said that coronavirus is actually widening the technical divide between countries, let alone companies. Also, I've noticed in the Harvard Business Report that coronavirus specifically is creating a major divide between companies. So what we notice, Carter, is that since COVID has happened, there's one of two things that you can do. As a company, you can say, okay, I've got people working from home. I need to have very good policies in place around you know, VPNs and security, and I need to make sure I have applications that are flexible that I can log and do from anywhere that they're supported by good broad broadband and bandwidth and so forth. But again, we talked earlier about the companies that are going to be saddled with, you know, let's, let's say that we completely change how real estate is handled. Companies that are saddled with a lot of real estate assets they, that they cannot, well, dispose of or rethink, that could change the way that they're able to do business simply because they have a higher cost structure. Very interesting to see um, how those things are playing out. And, you know, what we see from McKinsey, the COVID recovery is going to be digital. Again, you look at buying groceries. <laughs> you know, my, my wife and I, for example, you know, you go to the store, you know what you want. Now it's a matter of getting on an app. You type in some things, you hit submit, and then you schedule a time to pick it up, and they put it in your trunk completely changed the way that a lot of people do shopping. We don't know what the new normal looks like, but how do you see the automotive industry emerging out of COVID? Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation. And, you know, I like to think about, we had the old normal, we have what we might consider now the new normal, and then we have the next normal. 
and we don't know what the next normal is. And, and I don't think it's going to be the new normal. And I don't think it's going to be the old normal. It's going to be some, some hybrid. And so what will that look like? I think what is interesting is, you know, these different currents that we see, let's say, in the new normal with COVID right now. So on the one hand, a lot of people are staying at home and therefore they're not driving as much. And we've seen the insurance industry recognize that and actually lowers people, lower people's rates because less people were driving, less people were crashing. So you would think that that would actually reduce the desire to buy cars, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing used car prices now going up substantially. We're seeing people drive across the country to find that pickup truck on the used market that they want with, with prices actually going up. And so why is that? I think part of it is at least right now with the new normal, people aren't really excited to get onto public transportation, jump into that Uber. You know, they're thinking about their personal safety and their family safety, and they want that protection of being in their own bubble. And, and I can see that. I don't think that that's going to be a long-term trend. I do think once we move to the next normal, that you know, people will get more, on the one hand, pragmatic about, hey, cars are very expensive for the amount of time that I use them. So as new mobility options come online, let's, let's maybe think about that. And that will, that will change things. Just in my own personal life, you know, back in the, the old normal, wherever I used to travel on business, I would rent a car. I stopped doing that about two years ago and I started just using Ubers. It was just faster, less expensive, and less of a headache. And I think that we're starting to see people in cities again before the pandemic starting to think that way. So I think it's a little bit of a flip of a coin, but unfortunately for the automotive industry and particularly the, the ice industry, I do think that the battle's already been won. All of the, uh, the tea leaves are pointing to the fact that once we get EVs and we really get not only the total cost of ownership, but the total purchase price below that of ACES. Once we have autonomous coming on, once we combine that with ride sharing, it's going to be a very different world. And, and I'll go as far as to say, and I've had some great discussions with colleagues about what is the role of car ownership in the future. And I know that sounds really scary, but I think for the most part, people will make a conscious decision not to own cars, not simply because it's less expensive, but just because they have better things to do with their time and money than deal with it. Absolutely. I mean, for the individual consumer, clearly everything is going to change, but it's not only going to affect these individual consumers. No. You know, Carter, we're seeing, even in our industry, even in uh, what we do, we are now able to remotely deploy ERP solutions. For manufacturing companies that are trying to keep costs down, that are trying to get a high number of deployments done in a short period of time and have a cost positioned well, the onset of COVID has kind of forced the industry to look at remote deployments of systems. And that's something that we've been able to do because now you have the ability to, to again, do a remote deployment. You can have somebody in the facility use FaceTime or something to say, here's what I'm looking at. You know, can you help me with this? Or they can have, you know, if they have a, a, some type of mobile camera or something. But again, it's completely changing the way that things are done again. I think when we mold the, the what the individual is doing, what drives the what the business world is doing, and we start to drive those costs down, and we exit out of COVID, I think that there's going to be a lot of great things left behind, and that companies, you know, the ones that are have that have flexible architecture in their processes and systems that are adaptive to new technologies, and and think about what good things from 
the transition to ice to aces and from the ex-COVID world, what good things can I carry forward? I think that the ones that really embrace that and have good governance of those things are going to absolutely explode in growth. I really believe that. I, I totally agree. I mean, it's basically digital transformation. It's digital transformation in our industry. It's digital transformation in our customers' industries and in automotive. You know, I think that maybe even is a nice segue into, you know, the C of ACES. So that idea of a connected vehicle. Connected both in terms of everything within the vehicle being connected to itself, but then also the vehicle being connected to the OEM and to the suppliers. You know, the ability to be able to understand the performance of the vehicle and and uh, preemptively intervene for a service versus, you know, letting the customer be stranded on the side of the road. But I think also it comes down to innovation too, right? For example, in a car seat, we have sensors to understand if somebody's in the car seat to understand, you know, if the airbag should go off or not go off. But once you start to connect these things, you can do really innovative things like, okay, if I open my car door and my car sensor now says I'm no longer in the seat, stop playing the audio track I was playing. But if there's mm -hmm. still weight in my seat, keep playing it because it just means I opened my door for some reason, but I'm sitting in the car waiting for my wife to get back or whatever mm -hmm. that might be. So it just, it just radically changes, I think, the customer experience, but also for the, the OEM and for the entire supply chain, you know, the, the concept of being able to prevent physical recalls, you know, to the extent that I'm able to handle things through a software upgrade, that would be incredible. And then to do it over the air is a game changer. You know, in COVID, um, I live in Arizona. I have a car for work in California. It's a Volkswagen. And it needed to go in for a flashing of its emissions system. So somehow I needed to figure out a way to get that car into a dealership for hours so that they could plug it into a computer and update the firmware. What a total nightmare that was for me and a waste of my time. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. When, you know, in, in the future world through a connected vehicle, they didn't even need to tell me about it. It could have just happened. So I think, I think it's really going to be a game changer for customer experience, customer expectations. And then also the cost that that put on the dealership and then the OEM to have to deal with that was just a total waste also. Absolutely. Well, Carter, the world, as we see it, you know, the world is changing greatly. And again, you know, according to Forbes, the one expected outcome of COVID is that companies realize the benefits of fast tracking digital transformation. Companies, you know, they're going to need to adapt. I guess the final thought here, companies need to adapt. They're going to have to find new ways of doing business. The customer, as we described today, is looking for something different. They're seeing something different. They're buying different things. And companies are going to have to have new methods and flexibility to morph to what that future is going to require. And, you know, the, the processes that they're using, the systems that they're using, whether it's ERP quality, PLM, supply chain, all of those things are going to need to be reflective of that advanced technology. They're going to need to be quick to deploy, fit for purpose, and you know, financially positioned correctly for that company. Carter, I, I thank you so much for joining me today. I think we could we could have this <laughs> this episode could be you know we could do this a hundred times. I just I it's a great great subject, and I and I know you have a passion for it as well as I do. Tom, fantastic. Really appreciate the time. I'm sure uh, after COVID, we'll get together for some drinks and some dinner and continue the conversation from there. Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to Dirty Words. This podcast is brought to you by QAD. 
in a world of increasing change and disruption, it's important to have solutions that can help you not just survive, but thrive. Learn more about QED's adaptive applications on QED.com. Thank you.